Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you do not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am going a work in your days, that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am rising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and nasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen proudly press on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind and go on. Guilty men, those who might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? my Holy One. We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, a rock, have established them as for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the men more righteous than he? You made mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by whom he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? The word of the Lord. Or the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Here we are, we find ourselves again in one of these minor prophets of the Old Testament, this time Habakkuk, verse 1, uh, taking a look to see what this prophet is about. And Habakkuk flows on perfectly, uh, as it happens, from our scripture last week in Nahum, uh, not just in terms of being on the very next page of the Bible, although that is pretty helpful with these minor prophets, but in terms of the timing and the context of what's going on here. 
If you recall last week in Nahum, at about 640 BC, God was declaring judgment on Assyria. He had previously used Assyria to bring judgment on the northern tribes of Israel, but Assyria had continued to expand their empire and they were now oppressing God's people in Judah in the southern kingdom. So God warned Assyria through Nahum, do you remember, that his judgment was coming to them for their godless lust. And now, by the time of Habakkuk, about 20 years later, God was raising up Babylon, Babylon, who would carry out that judgment on Assyria that he warned of through Nahum, but who would also come now at last and in God's timing, carry out his judgment on Judah too. God had been patient with his people in Judah, even to within a matter of years, we see. But Judah too were sinful and Judah too were facing his punishment. And that's what we come up against here in Habakkuk. Today, probably about 620 BC, uh, this message comes to Habakkuk about the sin of God's people uh, in Judah. It's, it's hard to see it in the text of Habakkuk. It kind of just slowly grows and dawns on you. But Habakkuk actually sets all that up for us uh, from the very beginning with his, his complaint against his own people in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralysed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Justice therefore goes forth perverted. Sounds like Habakkuk is surrounded by sin in Judah. Our text here doesn't mention Judah, but but he's not complaining about wickedness out there somewhere in the world at large. It's right in front of his eyes. It's around him all the time. And God's law, I think he means in verse 4, God's law is failing because his own people aren't upholding it. The wicked are running rampant and, and oppressing people, even here in the last remnant of God's nation of Israel. And Habakkuk wants to know, verse 3, why do you tolerate that God? Why must Habakkuk live in the middle of such injustice? The timing and the context might flow on really nicely from Nahum last week, but there's something about the style of this book that actually reminds me more of Jonah if you recall our prophet Jonah, in that, uh, like Jonah, Habakkuk's not just receiving the word of God in a prophecy of judgment and hope. Habakkuk's wrestling, internally wrestling with the justice and mercy of God underneath those things. He's struggling with God in some way with this opening question. And also like Jonah, his wrestle is going to lead Habakkuk into a prayer at the end, takes up all of chapter 3. It's probably the more familiar part of Habakkuk for most of us, if we know it that well. And so it's as much as by what the prophet himself comes to learn in this book that then teaches us. And to be honest, it's a little refreshing, really, if you think about it, to to hear the truths of God in in this kind of way, that, that his prophets struggled to make sense of things until the truths of God became clear to them. And, and through them and their experience, they now become clear to us too. And yet, unlike Jonah, the book doesn't have long narrative sections. 
Uh, and the word of God that comes to the prophet is, is actually pressed out in quite a lot more length than it was in Jonah, uh, starting with God's uh, answer to Habakkuk's opening question, this first question in those first few verses. God uh, spends time explaining that he's already working on the response to Habakkuk's complaint of wickedness in Judah, verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that is, the Babylonians as they're more commonly known, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves or their idea of justice and dignity is what they themselves decide, I think, is what that means. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. And they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty man whose own might is their God. God's answer to the ongoing sinfulness of Judah is to raise up this other nation, Babylon, verse 6, a nation who would replace Assyria as the dominant world power, as we touched on last week. But by 612 BC, the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Scythians all came together and conquered Assyria. And by a few years later, it was Babylon that rose to prominence in those new nations and then became the new world empire. And what God leaves implicit here, Habakkuk understands. God is raising them up to prominence so that he can use them to bring about his judgment, his righteous punishment on the sin of Judah. Just a century or so earlier, he had raised up Assyria to do that, to bring his judgment on the northern part of Israel. Now he would do that again using Babylon on the southern remnant of his people. Habakkuk understands that much from what God says, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. God has appointed Babylon to execute judgment. He's ordained them to punish Judah, it would seem. And that did come to pass, by the way, not long after this prophecy. In a series of waves, Babylon carried out God's judgment against Judah until ultimately uh, in 586 BC, Judah lay completely ruined, conquered uh, the temple and the city of, of, of Jerusalem, sacked and burnt and, and the people carried away to Babylon in exile. This came to pass. God's patience towards Judah all those long years that we reflected on last week eventually came to an end. And at his appointed time, they were given into the hands of this nation, Babylon or, or Chaldea, whom he raised up for this purpose. But Habakkuk isn't so sure about that mechanism of God's judgment 
against Judah. The mechanism that God has chosen here. Why would God do it like this? Why would God bring the judgment of the sin in Judah by a nation that was even more wicked than Judah? He understands well enough from God's answer that that's what he's doing. He's raising up Babylon for this purpose, to carry out his punishment on Judah. But Habakkuk can't find peace with the way God plans to do that. Sure, there is sin in Habakkuk's land that needs to be punished. That was Habakkuk's first complaint. How long will you put up with the wickedness all around me, Lord God? But that the Lord would respond like this? Sending an even more wicked nation to punish their sin? That just doesn't compute for Habakkuk. And so he asks a second question then, a longer question around that part of all this. Verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, he says to God, and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? and remains silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. And on his question goes for the rest of chapter 1. As it happens, Habakkuk had already answered that second question himself. In his first question, Judah themselves were wicked. That is the whole opening premise of Habakkuk's book. And so since he knows that, Habakkuk then unwittingly answers that second question again in that second question, even in that same verse of his new complaint in in verse 13, God will do this precisely because his eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing, and so he must send punishment against Judah. So the nuance to the question then is why via Babylon. And the only premise to that objection is that, at least in Habakkuk's eyes, the Babylonians are more wicked than Judah. So let's be clear about this. Neither camp is is actually righteous in this equation. It's just sinful and more sinful if Habakkuk has got this right and we flip his words around, which might then, I guess, put something of a shiver into us as God begins his answer to that second question. If we can sneak a look into chapter 2 and verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely Come, it will not delay. God's judgment against sin is absolutely certain to come, in other words. And that's not good news at all. That's not good news for for anyone who has sinned, no matter where they come from. Have no fear, it does include Babylon too, as God then goes on in detail with, actually, for the rest of chapter 2. Babylon is sinful and they will be judged. But the scope of sin also includes the wicked people of Judah too that Habakkuk complains of all around him. That was the verdict of chapter 1. They are sinful and they too must therefore be punished. 
But if you read the whole book later, and that's the idea of the series, of course, read it all later and you might slowly sense that there's something different in in the punishment coming for Judah at the hands of Babylon and the punishment that God has reserved for Babylon. God's language is is longer and much, much stronger towards Babylon. You'll notice that much for sure. He also makes it very explicit in his language that Babylon will be judged, but he had only implied it towards Judah. Habakkuk had to kind of piece that together about Judah from what God had said there at the start. Read through Habakkuk and it slowly keys us into the idea that, that those punishing Judah will be even more severely punished themselves and that Judah's punishment won't go on forever. A bit like last week we saw in Nahum, their oppression under Assyria is, is, is eased when their punisher is punished. And if that sense we get in Habakkuk is true, then we need to lean in to this gospel according to Habakkuk and try to, try to figure this out. What's the difference? What's the difference between Judah, who are sinful but won't be completely destroyed, and, and Babylon, who are sinful and, and will be completely destroyed? It's another version of our question from last week, actually. What is it to be God's enemy? In chapter 2 and verse 4, if you still have your Bibles open. As God continues his answer to Habakkuk's second question, he speaks to those who will somehow survive the judgment and to those who won't. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's why judgment is coming, as per all of chapter 1, regardless of where you live, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Those seem to be two alternatives about the coming judgment the longer that you stare at that verse. So we need to wrestle with Habakkuk here and ask, what does God mean here, particularly by that second part? Who in all of this is righteous? Who does he mean will live? When you read right through uh, these few pages of Habakkuk later, you'll see a few things spelt out about Babylon. Uh, Chapter 1 and verses 6 through 10 that we just uh, read told us that they're ruthless, they're arrogant, but so too, if you you just cast your eyes across chapter 2 there, uh, you'll see enough phrases uh, tucked in here and there to pick up that they were much like the Assyrians we were thinking about last week in Nahum. They, They were violent, they were oppressive, bloodthirsty, greedy empire builders. But then again, those same kinds of things were said of Habakkuk's people in his first complaint. At the start of all this, Judah too was filled with violence, destruction, injustice, people living as if a law unto themselves. So it doesn't matter then whether you're Babylonian or or, or uh, Jewish on this question of, of sin. In which case, we come back to our problem. How then will anyone be saved? How is it, as you read through Habakkuk, that there seems to be a restraint around Judah's punishment such that in chapter 3, Habakkuk is, is going into a prayer of hope and deliverance? If you just scan to the last couple of paragraphs of chapter 3, you get a sense of that too pretty quickly. 
Habakkuk hears God's answers on all of these things and eventually finds himself in a prayer of confident patience as he waits to be delivered. I wonder if it's of particular significance that we should see Babylon's idolatry. Idolatry, because in that verse, in chapter 2, verse 4, we read of the righteous living by faith. And yet Babylon, chapter 1 and verse 11, were so self-exalting as to be gods in their own eyes. Verses 15 to 16, they, they worshipped their capacity for conquest, their military might. And moreover, God lands his judgment on them in, in chapter 2 precisely in terms of, of this, their false worship. After everything else he does say about them uh, in chapter 2, this is where God lands his judgment on Babylon uh, about their false worship, it is. Chapter 2 and verse 18, if you have your Bible there. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. Which then God contrasts with himself in the next verse and his rightful and deserved focus of all of our worship but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Could this be the difference that everything else here in Habakkuk springs from? That underneath the sin that Habakkuk and these other minor prophets have been revealing is common to everyone in varying degrees, Underneath that, the most important thing is it whether we desire to have God as our God and to worship him or, or, or if we desire to have some other thing as our God and worship that. It would make sense of that statement in chapter 2 verse 4, I suppose, of, of the righteous living through this judgment by their faith. And so maybe actually we should consider Habakkuk, at the centre of all this questioning of his. I mean, the scope of God's judgment takes in all the wickedness around him in Judah and it takes in the Babylonians that God will use to punish that sin. But does it take in, do you think, Habakkuk? Where does he stand on, on this question of sin and judgment in his life? Turn, if you would, to chapter 3 and verse 2. The start of Habakkuk's prayer as to how he responds to what God has pronounced here about this whole matter of sin and, and judgment. Habakkuk 3, 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, Remember mercy. 
when he speaks of finding mercy in chapter 3 and verse 2, do you, do you think Habakkuk is meaning that, that someone, somewhere, anyone, anywhere is innocent in all of this sin and that they should therefore be spared this disaster? Or is Habakkuk acknowledging sin by saying that? And for that reason, appealing for God's mercy. Isn't that what mercy is? Someone uh, getting uh, what they don't deserve? So if there were some righteous people in the midst of wicked Judah, such as Habakkuk himself, for example, then wouldn't Habakkuk here appeal rather for God to be fair or correct or comprehensive, or clear, or specific, or something when it comes to his wrath. But he asks, rather, for mercy. That line from God back in chapter 2 and verse 4 tells of some who will live, which I take it to mean some will survive the coming judgment against sin. Behold, The sinner's soul, I think it is, the sinner's soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. In scriptures like Romans and Galatians, Paul takes this truth, that the righteous will live by faith, as a crucial platform for his lengthy explanations about sin and judgment and how we can survive. It's a pivotal truth for for how we wrestle through this crisis in Habakkuk's day and in our day too. This crisis about the judgment that's actually deserved by everyone. But the gospel that that can declare us righteous and, and therefore safe. Paul interprets this line here as meaning that we are saved by our faith. By our faith. And that that therefore is what it is to be righteous, that we have faith in God to have mercy and save us from the judgment we do deserve. By faith in him and faithfully standing in that simple faith in him, we are declared righteous Even though any casual inspection for sin, let's be honest, friends, any casual inspection for sin would reveal in every one of us that we're not righteous by that kind of score. Perhaps that answers the question about where Habakkuk stands in all of this. Not that he's on a different page to these other people because he doesn't have any sin, but because he does have God. He does have God. I think we get a best handle on that verse in chapter 2 and verse 4 if we read it twice, actually. The first time we might read it with the emphasis on, on that word live. That in the judgment coming on all who deserve it, from Babylon to Judah to Habakkuk to you and I, the righteous will nevertheless live because their faith is in God. In which case it would basically mean, as Paul does say, the righteous will be saved by faith. Then we could read it back a second time, I reckon, and let the emphasis fall on that word, faith. The righteous will live by faith. Faith being, therefore, the only thing that can save anyone from the judgment that they deserve. 
such that, that this is then what it comes to constitute righteousness in the more important sense of that word. To be declared righteous in such a way, though, knowing that you are sinful, but, but that God has mercy to save those who trust in him, I tell you, it gives you a whole new perspective on this matter of sin forever after. It humbles your heart to know this truth. It fills you with wonder to know of God's mercy. And that makes you want to turn now and, and strive towards, yes, that other sense of this righteousness word, that you really will want to live now a life that's pleasing to God. But not with your salvation depending on that. Simply out of a grateful, joyful response to God having counted you as righteous just via your faith in his mercy to save you. All of this gospel of Habakkuk crystallises, by the way, in Jesus Christ who was crucified for our sin. This is what scriptures like Romans and Galatians are all explaining if you read them in full. They're unpacking the crisis that Habakkuk really has just opened the lid on here about sin being so universal that, that our instinctive defence really all we've got is to just try and say, well, well I'm, not, I'm not as sinful as these people around me. I'm not like those people over there. That's all we've got. All of us are sinful, friends, and all of us deserve judgment. But God so loved the world that he gave us the Son so that whosoever should believe in him, put their trust in him, that is, put their faith in him, these people will not perish in the judgment when it comes, but have eternal life. Our sin was placed on him so that God's righteous wrath against our sin could be poured out on him on that cross. It won't be poured out again now if we have put our faith in him. We will live by that faith according to the mercy of our God. If you haven't come into that gospel yet, uh, then heed the warning of sin and judgment here in Habakkuk when you do sit down and read through it all later. Be sure to end up spending time with Habakkuk in chapter 3 too. His prayer seems to be a recognition that, that nobody's going to escape. Nobody's going to escape the almighty creator of heaven and earth on judgment day. Be sure to, to wrestle, therefore, with the reality of your sin and your need for God's mercy and understand that that mercy comes to you by faith in this God. Think about the real question that Habakkuk throws up. It's not, do you have sin? But do you have God. And if you have come to faith in God's mercy that has now come to us in Jesus Christ, or if you will do that today, then, then humbly consider as you read through Habakkuk the plight of God's people, not just in terms of being surrounded by sinners or beset by sinners, 
Be honest. Be vulnerable about this simple truth that we too are sinful. Understand that we too, therefore, will face discipline now and then for that basic reality of our sin. But know that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it will not last forever. And from that, uh, uh, learn then to find the humility to maintain in your life an, an ongoing posture through life, a posture of repentance as you try to walk out this reality between now and the day of eternity. Read through Habakkuk later and and see not just the, the plight of God's people, but the hope of God's people. We know how this will end. Feel the humbled awe at God and and the relief in Habakkuk's prayer, particularly at the end. I hear, he says in in chapter 3 and verse 16, I hear of God's coming judgment, that is. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. God's discipline will not last forever for those who are of faith in him. Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ. It will, I'm afraid to say, last forever for those who won't come to God. Though the fig tree should not blossom, Habakkuk goes on for his own situation, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Salvation. For I too should be judged. It seems like Habakkuk is starting to concede. But in the end, I will be saved. For the simple and singular reason that the Lord is my God and he is merciful to save. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Praise be to our merciful Saviour, God. He will carry us through this wretched battle with sin, without and within. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scripture to us today uh, in Habakkuk here. We read of such simple concepts here as, as sin and judgment, and yet we read here too of mercy. Thank you that you have not forgotten mercy and will not forget mercy, but that you yourself have paid for our sin. And you call us in response only 
to receive your mercy by faith. Thank you for giving us your Son, Jesus, whom you love, to carry the penalty we should have worn but but never could have paid. Thank you, Father, for your love to us. Thank you for your mercy to us. Mere sinners whom you have saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.